following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Our uh, oldest son, Josh, is just at the point now where he's starting to read independently. And so up to now, he's been reading to us. And we've been reading with him, but he's now just at that wonderful stage where he can get a book and go lie on his bed and go read it for a while. And if you're parents of young kids, you know that is a blessed stage to get to when they start independently reading. That's wonderful. And there's one particular book or a series of books, really, that's just got him over this line and got him interested in reading by himself and reading independently. It's a series that he's got at school, and he gets one of these books out almost every week and just devours them. And the name of the series is Boy Versus Beast. And it's really the perfect series for a seven-year-old boy. It's just these huge, big, mutant beast monsters and a boy who fights against them with all kinds of weapons. And Josh loves it. And so we, as a family at the moment, are immersed in the world of boy versus beast. And we're talking about all these beasts and all these creatures and all the lands where they come from and all the different kinds of weapons that they use. And that's just our world at the moment. That's our family life. So uh, to be honest with you, when I read Daniel 7 right now, I'm right at home. I'm good. Uh, these beasts, this is just familiar territory for me. I mean, this is the kind of thing. In fact, we were uh, I, a few years ago, I read through a, a children's Bible with our older two boys. It's called the Action Bible, and they have all these great pictures and graphics of the, of the things. And they've got these pictures of the four beasts in Daniel, and our boys just love them. They just absolutely, they wanted to keep on coming back to Daniel 7, even after we'd finished with that chapter. Daniel 7 is like our boys' favorite chapter in the whole Bible. So um, this is great. And if you've got young, particularly young boys, and you want to get them into the Bible, I would suggest start with Daniel 7. It's fantastic. I mean, I know you think you're supposed to start with the birth of Jesus or whatever, but just get them into Daniel 7. They will never put the Bible down again. It's fantastic. So having said all that, this is what we've got here is this, the first of really a series of dreams and visions that Daniel has, which take up the second half of the book of Daniel. And it's just important to note here that the second half of Daniel does not follow chronologically on from the first half, but it slots back into the first half. Okay, so for example, this chapter uh, which Daniel got this vision in the first year of King Belshazzar. So that actually puts it between chapter 4 and 5. So you see, that's just important for reading Daniel, that you don't assume the timeline just continues. The second half of the book is laid onto the timeline of the first half of the book, okay? So we'll, we'll just have a look at this vision uh, and see if we can make some sense of it this morning. Um, let me just say up front, there are different interpretations of some of these details. Christians disagree on some of the details of the visions. Thankfully, they generally all agree on the main things, which is great. But there are some different interpretations of this. I'm not going to have time to go through every single interpretation of every single verse. If you have a different view on some of these things than the one I present, that's fine. That's absolutely fine. If what I say gets you back into the Scriptures to look at this for yourself, read it for yourself, study it for yourself, fantastic. I'll consider that a, a good morning. Uh, so we may disagree on some of the details, but that's our ethos as a church. We're a unity and diversity, right? And we love and learn and listen to one another. So let's go forward on that basis. And uh, any complaints, you know the email to send them to michaelatshaw.org.nz. <laughs> All right. There we go. Let's get stuck in. So I want to I wanna just frame this message around um, the three main characters or groups of characters in this vision, the beasts, 
and then the Ancient of Days, and then the Son of Man. Okay, so that's where we're heading up front. Now you know. So the beasts, these four beasts. Daniel has a terrifying dream, and in his dream he sees these four beasts coming up out of the sea. And verse 3, uh, this is going to be a good morning, by the way, just to have the Bible right there and work through and look at these verses as we go. We're going to be doing some Bible study along the way. Uh, these four beasts, they come out of the sea. Now that's significant, the fact these beasts arise from the sea. Uh, the sea in the ancient world was a, a symbol, really, of disorder and chaos. The sea was an ominous place. It wasn't well explored. It wasn't well charted. And so it represented danger. It was threatening. It was intimidating. And so straight away, we know these beasts are not going to be good. They're not going to be nice, friendly monsters. They are going to be bad. They are going to be negative. They are going to be opposed to God's story and God's work in some way. So we know that even before we get to the first beast. Now, Daniel is told that these beasts represent kings or kingdoms that will arise from the earth. So different states or empires or kingdoms that would uh, be part of the ancient world. So let's just walk through them. The first beast he sees is like a lion, uh, and it has the wings of an eagle. Now, almost everybody agrees that this beast is Babylon, the Babylonian Empire. That was the empire Daniel was a part of when he received this vision. Uh, that's the starting point for these, for these visions. This beast represents Babylon, and it's an appropriate symbol uh, in the Bible. King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the, the most prominent king of Babylon, uh, he is described as both a lion and an eagle. Uh, in fact, in the ancient city of Babylon, archaeologists have dug up symbols of winged lions representing the power and the strength and the speed of this empire. So it's an appropriate symbol. It's an appropriate beast to describe Babylon. In fact, if this is talking about Babylon... Uh, this description of what happens to the lion is quite fitting of what happens to King Nebuchadnezzar back in Daniel chapter 4. The idea of the wings being ripped off the lion represents probably Nebuchadnezzar going insane. Do you remember that? When he was prideful before God. And then the idea of the lion being stood back on its feet like a human being probably represents Nebuchadnezzar's sanity being restored. Restored like the mind of a human uh, after his insanity when he finally acknowledged the sovereignty of God. So all that squares fairly well with what we know of Nebuchadnezzar and of Babylon. So the first beast is probably Babylon. Now, the second beast looks like a bear, this ferocious bear. Uh, it has three ribs in its mouth. It's told to get up and eat its fill of flesh. It is a lopsided bear. It's raised up on one side. Uh, most likely, this bear represents the empire that came after Babylon, which was the Medo-Persian Empire the empire of the Medes and the Persians. This is where Cyrus and Darius fit into the story. Uh, that empire is described as a bear. It's pretty appropriate. Um, this was a ferocious empire, a ravenous empire. It was bent on military conquest. It conquered a lot of people groups, a lot of territory. In fact, the Medo-Persian empire controlled more territory than any other empire up to that point in history. So it had this bear-like appetite for, for conquest uh, and the idea of the bear being raised up on one side is, again, very appropriate for this empire because this was a lopsided empire. It was the empire of the Medes and the Persians, two people groups. But there was a huge power imbalance between those people groups. It was really the Persians that were in charge. It was the Persians who were in control. The Medes were just a small little people group that was swallowed up within that empire. So this bear that is kind of raised up on one side represents that imbalance of power going on within the Medo-Persian empire, that the Persians were the ones in control, the Medes much less so. So probably the, the bear 
represents the Medo-Persian Empire. Then we come to the third beast, which looks like a leopard, and it has four wings, like a bird. So you've got this animal that's already an incredibly fast animal, and then it's given four wings. So now you've got like a souped-up leopard, this incredibly fast animal. And the whole emphasis here is on speed, the speed of the animal. And most likely, again, if you follow the sequence, if the first beast is Babylon and the second beast is Medo-Persia, probably this third beast is the empire of Greece, the Greek empire. That was the empire that followed on from the Medo-Persian empire in terms of its power in this region. And again, the the image of the, the leopard with the wings, it's an appropriate image. The Greeks conquered so much of the known world at the time with lightning speed. Alexander the Great, he's the infamous Greek general or king. Uh, He conquered the whole region of Asia Minor by the time he was 22. Ten years on from that, he had conquered the entire Medo-Persian Empire, pushed it to the boundaries of India. I mean, this was just an empire that experienced rapid, rapid expansion. And so there's that idea of lightning quickness to the way that this took over territory, and that's fitting of what we know of the Greek Empire. And the four heads of the leopard are very appropriate to what happened after Alexander. After Alexander the Great died, his empire was carved up by his four generals. It became a fragmented empire, and that probably represents the four heads of the leopard. So this is now getting well beyond Daniel's day. He's back here in the Babylonian empire, the lion. But he's looking forward now, his vision and the vision that he's given, he's looking forward to the, to the bear, the Medo-Persian empire, and then onward to the leopard, the uh, Greek empire, and then there is a fourth empire. Now, this empire is just described as being, in verse 7, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It has large iron teeth. It crushes and devours its victims. It tramples underfoot whatever is left. Most likely, if the first beast is Babylon and the second is Medo-Persia and the third is Greece, most likely this is the, the empire that came after Greece, which was Rome, the Roman Empire, the next great superpower to arise. And this would all be a fitting description of what Rome was like. Powerful, terrifying, frightening. It was a brutal empire. It was a very strong military empire, and, and multitudes of people and people groups were, were subdued and crushed under the iron boots of the Roman legions. Probably the ten horns of this beast represent the total power and control that Rome had. There's some differences of interpretation here. I don't personally think the ten horns needs to be taken in a literal sense, as if it's literally talking about ten people or ten rulers. The number ten in Scripture, and you see this in the book of Revelation, can simply mean a full number or a complete number or a total number. It's probably talking about the way that Rome had total and complete control over pretty much the known world, certainly over the peoples and the territories that it conquered and controlled. So that symbol of Rome's strength, the horns symbolize power and strength. It's talking about the total and brutal control of Rome. And then we get to this little horn that comes up in amongst the ten horns and uproots three of these horns. And this little horn, he's a real troublemaker. He's got the eyes of a human being, you read in verse 8. He's got a mouth that speaks boastfully. He oppresses God's people. He crushes God's people. He defeats them for a period of time. He tries to change the set laws and the times. He's, 
He's a pretty awful character, this little horn. And there have been all kinds of interpretations. This really is where the interpretations just vary enormously. People have associated this little horn with just about everyone in history, from the Pope to a future Antichrist to, I read someone this week talking about Donald Trump as the little horn. I mean, you can basically think of like any world ruler that you don't like, and you can say, that's the little horn Daniel's talking about, and Daniel 7 is slap that label on them and kind of make it worse. So I think, again, we've got to remember here that this, this little horn is connected to the fourth beast. So if that fourth beast is Rome, the empire of Rome, we should be looking for some sort of interpretation that's connected to the Roman Empire rather than just some other random figure in history. And here, I tend to follow the view of John Calvin, the great reformer, theologian, who said most likely that little horn refers to the Caesars of Rome, the various Caesars of Rome. So once the first Caesar came to power, who was Octavius or Augustus, same name for the uh, two names for the same person. Uh, the power of the empire was really centralized then in one person. Uh, Rome wasn't then ruled by a whole lot of leaders. All the power, all the control of Rome came to rest in this one person who had supreme authority over the Roman Empire. I think that's probably what that little horn is referring to. And if that's the case, it means that little horn is not one particular individual but it represents a title or an office of Caesar. And obviously, a number of people held that title because there were a number of Caesars uh, through centuries of the Roman Empire. And when you read what this little horn gets up to and the trouble that he makes, it all squares fairly well with what we know of the Caesars and what they got up to, even the way that this one horn uproots three other horns, and this is how the first Caesar came to power uh, after a little trifecta of rulers was disbanded. Uh, the way the Caesar or the, the little horn speaks boastfully, that's certainly true of the Caesars, even to the point of claiming themselves to be God. The way that the little horn oppresses God's people, that's all right there, the persecution of the church through the first century, especially under Caesars like Nero and Domitian. Uh, the way the Caesars try to change the set laws and the times when Augustus came to power, the entire Roman calendar was changed around his birthday. His birthday became the first day of the year, became New Year's Day. So the Caesars did all this. They fit the description of that little horn, but not any one particular person, but the Caesars in general. I think that's probably the most logical view uh, of what's going on then. So the fourth beast probably represents Rome, and the horns of the beast represent Rome's power and control and how it became centralized in this one figure of the Caesar. Now, having said that, and you may have a different take on that, you may agree or disagree, that's fine. But when you step back from this, let me just make this general comment on the fourth beast. There is something different about that beast. Whatever you think of it, Whatever you think of the details, there is something different about that beast. In fact, the word different is used three times to refer to that beast. It's different to the other beasts. And that little horn is different to all of the other horns. This beast is not identified with any particular animal like the others are. You've got the lion and the bear and the leopard, but then this fourth beast 
It doesn't correspond to any animal in God's creation at all. And because of that, a number of commentators have pointed out that probably what's going on here is that this last beast, it corresponds to Rome, but not just Rome. It does square pretty well, I think, of what we know of the Roman Empire, but it has a meaning that transcends just the Roman Empire. That this last beast is not limited to any one historical empire, but it represents all forms of human evil down through history. This last beast really is like a catch-all for everything else. It's like saying Rome and all the rest. Rome and every other expression of human evil that was going to come after Rome. Every empire, every nation, every people group, every individual person who lives in this anti-God kind of way, who stands against the purposes of God, who stands against the plans of God, who stands against the people of God, they are all represented by this fourth beast. It's not identified with any one animal because it's not supposed to be limited to any one historical empire, but represents the way evil has manifested itself in so many ways down through human history. Sometimes in one individual person, like a Caesar, and we could name many other people throughout history who are bent on evil, bent on destruction. Sometimes in groups of people, whether as vast as an empire or as small as a, as a, as a family, Sometimes simply the forces of evil that swirl around in our world and we struggle to kind of pin them down and we struggle to trace them to any one person. You know how evil and sin kind of get embedded sometimes in social structures or institutions or, or systems and, you, and, you, and there's just something wrong but you can't quite point the finger at any one person. That's all represented by this fourth beast. This fourth beast is a stand-in for the way that human evil is expressed right throughout history from Rome all the way through, all the way through our day and on into the future. It is a symbol of human evil. And that's really what all of these beasts emphasize to us. What is the point of these beasts in Daniel's vision? It is to emphasize to us the ugly reality of human evil. That's it. Whatever details you think they correspond to, the ultimate point is this. These beasts show us the ugliness, the awfulness of human evil in all of its myriad forms. And we don't need to look far to see it. We don't need to think hard to see it the way that evil, human evil is manifest in our world today. Uh, you think about a global level. Think about what's going on at the moment in South Sudan. I know we're all caught up in Syria this week, but South Sudan doesn't get the headlines because it's not involving Western countries as much. But in South Sudan right now, there's 5 million people categorized as being severely hungry. 100,000 people literally starving. The massive famine taking hold of that nation, and it is almost an entirely human-made famine. Almost entirely man-made. Because of a terrible civil war that has wreaked havoc on that country, people wiping out each other's livelihoods, stealing each other's cattle, destroying each other's crops for years and years and years, cutting off the ability of other people to make a living. And because of the way now it seems the government is resisting food supply getting to its own people. And it's just shocking. It's just appalling if that's actually what's happening. It is evil. We, I think we've got to be comfortable using that word when it's appropriate to name the ways in which people tread over the bodies of other people to get what they want and what serves their interests. This is evil stuff. It's evil. But it's not just out there. It's close to home. I mean, every expression of anger or violence, corruption selfishness, greed, 
lust, whatever it may be, all of these things, they're all anti-God ways of living. They're all represented by that fourth beast. And the scary thing is, the most scary thing is, that fourth beast also represents us. We don't like to think about it, but we're all capable, aren't we, of living in some pretty anti-God ways at times? The reality is that fourth beast resides in every single human heart. That we often push people aside to get what we want. We treat other people badly at times. And we're driven by such selfishness, and we live in such anti-God ways. This beast represents the problem of evil that is out there, yes, but it's also in here. It runs through every single human heart. And so this beast reminds us that evil is a sobering reality. It's a difficult reality. It's an ugly reality. And it's represented by the awfulness and the terror of these four beasts. So we're confronted with that, and we should be disturbed by it. But that is not all that's going on in this vision, thank goodness. That then, here's the pivotal point in the dream, Daniel's looking at these beasts, and then he sees, where are we? What verse? Uh, Verse 9, then he sees this figure. The Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days, everybody agrees, represents God. Thank goodness we can all agree on the main thing. This represents God. And and the way in which the Ancient of Days is described all points towards the beauty and the majesty and the sovereignty and the glory and the power of God. You just read verse 9 and 10. It's wonderful stuff. And this this is God. And the scene in which God appears is the scene of a courtroom where the courts are seated, and he takes his seat on the throne. It's a throne of judgment in this case, not a royal throne. It's a judgment seat, and the books are opened, the books of the deeds of the guilty. The Ancient of Days takes his seat on the throne of judgment, and he pronounces judgment on that fourth beast, and the fourth beast is taken away and totally destroyed. Its power is gone forever. And that's why it's so important that we don't just tie that fourth beast to the historical Roman Empire, because Rome itself didn't experience the judgment of God in the way that's described. But what this passage points us towards is that day that is coming when God is going to pronounce a judgment on all evil, on everything that fourth beast represents, every form, every expression of anti-God living, all of that is going to be judged and condemned and it's going to be done away with. And one day God is going to bring about a world where there is no more beasts. There is no more of this beastly, ghastly stuff, whether globally or locally. But there will be a world where God's shalom prevails, where he brings justice to bear on injustice, where there is no more famine, there is no more chemical weapons being used on children. There are no more terror attacks. There are no more experiences where people are harmed and mistreated. But God will be all in all and his kingdom will come. That's the Ancient of Days. And so in this vision, the Ancient of Days reminds us that God is still on the throne. God is still on the throne. And we need to be reminded of this because we see these beasts in our world. And whether we see a terror attack in Stockholm whether we see chemical weapons in Syria, whether we see famine in South Sudan, whether we see examples of this closer to home, whatever the expression of human evil, as Christians, we've got to be able to look up and say, God is still on the throne, right? No matter what's happening, God is still in control. Somehow, He's holding it all in His hands. Despite appearances to the contrary, God is still on the throne. That very word, ancient of days, it says so much about God. It's beautiful, the ancient of days. It just lifts your perspective up 
beyond the stuff we all get bogged down and it just raises you up to see God in His eternality. And we see that He is the first and the last, that He's the beginning and the end. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the one who was and is and is to come. The God who is the same yesterday and today and forever. He is immovable. He is unshakable. He is steady and unchanging. That's God. That's the ancient of days. And so when we feel in this world or just in our lives like everything's kind of shifting and things are out of control and there's so much turbulence and there's so much chaos going on around us, maybe for some of you there's so much chaos going on within you. It's this internal experience of chaos. But whatever it is, we feel like the ground is not steady under our feet. We can lift up our eyes and we can look at the Ancient of Days and we remember He's still on the throne. He's holding this world in His hand. He's holding His people in His hand. And He is holding the future in His hand because He's going to bring about a day when there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no crying, no pain. The old order of things is going to be done away with and He's going to make all things new. He's going to judge evil and vanquish evil from this world and bring about His perfect kingdom of peace and justice and righteousness upon this world. That's what's coming. And that should give us some confidence, shouldn't it, as we look at these beasts in our lives and in our world, to know the Ancient of Days is still on the throne. So we see the beasts here represent the power and the reality of evil. We see the Ancient of Days represents that God is still on the throne. And then one final figure in this vision, really the most important and significant part of this vision, comes in verse 13, where Daniel's looking and then he sees one like a son of man coming with the clouds. We know who this is, right? We're getting excited already. The son of man is coming on the clouds of heaven. He approaches the Ancient of Days. He receives authority from the Ancient of Days, and then he establishes his eternal kingdom. Now, again, everybody agrees that this is talking about who? Jesus. Yeah. And we know that because several reasons. One is that this term, Son of Man, is the, the most common way that Jesus himself refers to himself in the Gospels. It's his favorite name for himself. He's always talking about the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Whatever he's saying, he's referring to himself in the third person as the Son of Man. Now, at one level, Son of Man just means human being. So Jesus is talking about the fact that he is a human being. But Jesus knew the book of Daniel. I mean, you think about it. Jesus would have read Daniel. He, he may have memorized Daniel. He certainly would have known Daniel 7. He would have known this prophecy. And so he would have read about the Son of Man. So when Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man... He is identifying himself with this figure in this vision in Daniel 7. He is saying, I'm that guy. I'm that guy that Daniel saw. That is me. Jesus is the one who comes on the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days. And Jesus is the one who gives us a pretty big clue as to how we should interpret that. Because he actually uses that phrase in Matthew 24 verse 30, where he says, And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That, he's picking up the language there from Daniel 7, and most people believe that that's a reference to the future second coming of Jesus. So one day Jesus is going to come back to earth. We don't know whether he'll literally be riding on a cloud or not, but he will come back with great power and great glory. So this, this, this vision that Daniel has of the Son of Man, in the first instance, it is a beautiful picture of the return of Christ. The Son of Man receiving authority to finally establish his kingdom on this earth. 
Once the beasts are judged and they are done away with, then a son of man comes and he sets up God's kingdom upon this earth. And that is an eternal kingdom that will never pass away. But there is a little bit more to it. Even though Jesus will establish the fullness of his kingdom when he returns again, we can't lose sight of the fact that he has already begun initiating his kingdom when he first lived on this earth. Right? I mean, he started his kingdom during his life, through his death, through his resurrection. He has already inaugurated the kingdom. And he's already received authority from the Father. I mean, he said to his disciples before he left earth, all authority in heaven and earth has, has been given to me. So Jesus, in some ways, this vision also points us backwards towards the first coming of Christ when he began his kingdom, when he established his kingdom. And it's so fitting in the context of this vision. Because you think again about these beasts, from one to the other, these successive empires, which was the empire in which Jesus arrived? It's the fourth beast. It's the empire of Rome. That's the very time period in which the Son of Man came to earth the first time. When that little horn was on the throne, when the Caesars were on the throne, Caesar Augustus, when he was on the throne, then in the midst of that beast and during the reign of that little horn, the Son of Man appeared on the earth. Jesus came to earth. He lived and he died and he was raised again and he began to establish his kingdom upon the earth. So this, this prophecy, particularly verse 13 and 14 around the Son of Man, it has what we call a double fulfillment. And this is not unusual for biblical prophecy that it points in two directions at the same time. In the first instance, it points us back to the first coming of Christ when he began his kingdom. And then it points us on to the second coming of Christ when he'll return again with great power and glory and he will establish the fullness of his kingdom. He'll bring it to completion. The kingdom inaugurated and the kingdom completed. And we live in between those two things. We live in between the beginning of the kingdom and the fullness of the kingdom. And in that space, the Son of Man in this vision reminds us that Christ has the victory. That Jesus has the victory. That's what the Son of Man is all about. That Jesus has this victory. That Jesus, through his death on the cross, has already won a victory over all the beasts. Even though it's yet to be worked out, he has won this victory. That Jesus died on the cross. And there's a beautiful irony there that he was crucified by the empire. He was crucified by the Roman Empire. He died on a Roman cross, crucified by the little horn, crucified by the fourth beast. And yet in that act, in that very act of his crucifixion, Jesus won this cosmic victory over all the powers of darkness, over all sin and death, and the one who holds the power of death, Satan, the one who animates these beasts in the first place. He won a victory over all of them. He made a public spectacle of them on the cross and that victory is won. That is already done. So we need to remember in the present, even though these beasts are terrifying and frightening and evil is a very real presence in the world, we've got to remember Jesus already has the victory. That's being outworked in the world, and, and one day it's going to be fully implemented. But Jesus has already won the victory on that cross. So even though things may seem out of control, we've got to remember evil doesn't have the final word. Evil is always limited. Even if only in this life, it's always limited. The power of the evil one is always limited. He can only oppress God's people for so long before the Son of Man finally comes and puts things right. Christ has won the victory. And so we're not, in this life, we're not so much fighting a battle, we're outworking a victory. 
We're outworking the victory of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we should be all triumphalist about it and all macho and expect like nothing's ever going to go wrong. But it means that we know Christ has a victory. But that's already secured by his death and resurrection. That should give us the confidence to persevere. That's what it should build into our lives, a deep perseverance that we know we can hang on because there's a victory that's been won and there's another great victory coming and we can hang on and we can go another round and we can cling to Christ because he sustains us until the time that he's going to come again and make all things new. So the Son of Man reminds us Jesus has this extraordinary victory and we live in light of that victory and we can cling to that hope. We can cling to that victory even when things are really, really hard in our lives. Last night, our middle boy Lawson, it was a few hours after the boys had gone to bed and Lawson woke up crying <clears throat> and uh, Anna went in and, and brought him out and he'd just had this terrible dream. And this happens to him sometimes. He gets these night terrors and so he has this awful dream and then he can't quite wake up from it. Um, and so even, when, even though he's awake, he's still kind of in the dream. And it's, it's scary because he's still really, really scared. Even when you've got him there and he's kind of awake, but you can just sort of, sort of see he's still in, in that dream. And all we can really do uh, when he's in that state is we just brought him out into the lounge and I sat him on my knee and you just kind of wrap your arms around him and just give him this big bear hug because so he, he's sort of squirming and shaking and everything and we just hold him and just hold him until it's several minutes and then finally the breathing starts to calm down and finally you can sort of see him starting to come around. And we're just holding him there, just saying, hey, Dad's here. It's okay. You're safe. You're all right. There's nothing I can do about the dream, but I can just hold him until it passes and he's okay. And I wonder if in some ways that's a picture of this vision and what it's supposed to do to us. You know, Daniel says he, he got right through this whole dream. He gets to the end of it, and it says he was deeply troubled. His face turned pale. This was troubling. It was a nightmare, really. And I think this vision should have that effect on us. We should be troubled by these beasts. It's not, just, it's not fiction. It's not a fairy tale. These beasts represent something very, very real, the presence of evil. And we should be troubled. We should be agitated by the presence of human evil in our world. It should grieve us. It should trouble us. It should stir us up. But at the same time, we know, because this vision tells us, that even though we may be terrified by those beasts and the presence of evil in our world, the Ancient of Days is holding us. He's holding us. And he's not taking that dream away right now. He's not just suddenly taking those beasts away. That's going to happen when Christ returns. But right now, he's holding us. He's holding you and he's saying, it's okay. I'm your father. I'm here. You are safe. You are safe. And I'm going to hold you until this dream passes. I'm going to hold you until everything is okay. I'm going to hold you until the end. I've got you. That's what our Heavenly Father is saying to us. That's what the Ancient of Days is speaking to us. That's what the Son of Man is saying to us. So we don't need to be scared of the evil in our circumstances and in our world because we know that God has us in His arms. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the way that this vision just pulls back the curtain on so much of the way that we just go about our lives. We don't see these realities, God, but they're there all the time. The beastly face of evil. And yet your amazing sovereignty and your hand on all things. And Jesus, we thank you that you are the Son of Man, the one who gives us 
the victory. And Lord, some of us this morning aren't feeling particularly victorious. Some of us this morning feel like these beasts are devouring our lives, our families, our marriages. So Father, I want to pray for anyone this morning who just feels like they are losing the battle. Anyone this morning who is just battling away and they just feel like they're losing ground rather than gaining ground, I want to pray, Lord Jesus, that you would bring this vision alive for them in their hearts, that it wouldn't just be a strange prophecy on the pages of the Bible, but it would be the reality of what you have done and are doing and have yet to do. And I pray you'd just be the lifter of their heads, Lord, to lift their eyes up, to see you, to see that you are in control despite appearances to see that you have the victory. The victory has been won. And I pray that you, by your Spirit, would breathe fresh hope into their lives. I pray you'd breathe fresh courage into their lives, God, where there's just weakness and timidity, and they've kind of been scared off by these beasts and so intimidated by the things that are going on. But, Father, I pray that you would give them courage now to face what they are facing because you are with them and because you hold them. God, I pray for anyone this morning that just feels like they're losing in life. Anyone that feels like they're going backwards in life. I pray, Lord, right now you just lift the, lift the curtains and enable them to see your great victory and to see the way that because of the cross we are moving forward and we are moving towards the day when your kingdom is all that there is. So in the present, God, would you sustain us? Would you strengthen the ones that are weak? Would you give courage and would you give sustenance to the ones that are struggling this morning, Father? Would you pour your spirit into the lives of those that are just desperate and struggling and just enable them to rise up with wings like eagles? Father, we thank you that you are on the throne. We are so grateful. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are stronger than anything that comes against us in our lives. Thank you that you have the victory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.